met today's guest outside one of my favorite bottle stores, Hillcrest Tops, and he was trying to peddle or get some information about a project that he was working on, and that was to import Malawi gin. Now, every expat and everybody who's been to Malawi will know this wonderful gin and might not be the greatest gin, but it certainly is the greatest place to drink gin. Um, let's welcome Carl Grossman to to today's show. Uh, thank you, Holger. Thanks. So tell us about the story of Malawi gin. Yeah, I guess that's that's where it all started. I remember meeting you quite clearly when I was browsing the shelves in Hillcrest Tops, looking at all the gins, what was available at the time. And at that stage, I was looking at importing Malawi gin into South Africa because of the relationship with South Africans and Malawi going way back. Um, I realized there was potentially a big market for, for Malawi gin at that stage. But my relationship with Malawi gin goes way back to a Trans-Africa trip I did in 1993 from Cape Town to Cairo overland. And that's when I first encountered Malawi and Malawi gin and yeah, I discovered gin there, and as you said, that's probably the best place in Africa to, to have a gin and tonic. <laughs> well, I guess any place in Africa is a uh, good place. I guess a uh, good sunset, and you can't go wrong. <laughs> good sunset and a bit of water. Yeah. <laughs> okay, tell us about that trip. What, what triggered that trip? 93, that's, that's a long time ago, and that was... Ah, oh, it is, but it goes way back to my father, who left Germany in, well... He was working in North Africa and Libya in 1955 and he decided uh, with him and a mate they found two Kubelwagens in the desert, in the Libyan desert. Um, they just had flat batteries and flat tires so they, they fixed them both up, sold the one and then decided to drive down to South Africa and the other one. What is a Kuppelwagen? It's the, it's the old German army jeep I guess, okay. um, the forerunner um, of the VW Beetle. We'll have to find a photo of that yes now i've actually got some of him actually okay. on that trip yeah oh, that would be great <laughs> okay so, so it was a yeah retracing his steps down that he did coming down to south africa um obviously we had to do different routes and stuff depending on what country was at war time <laughs> yeah but yeah no that was a great trip okay i was lucky enough to get some malawi gin from my cousin who was a diplomat in in malawi for i guess four years and in his container, when he came back, was a couple of cases of Malawi gin, which uh, I think I got a either a case, but probably only a bottle. No, even today when I'm, my friends come down from Malawi, that's one of my orders for, for <laughs> them to bring. They know what to bring. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah but uh, <laughs> Malawi gin is owned by one of the big, uh, probably Diageo or somebody. I, I think it is now, yes. And mm. um, It used so to be Carlsberg, okay. and they sold out, yeah. Okay. But this uh, then triggered something else. You wanted to make your own gin, I guess. Yes, um, that didn't take off um, Yeah, for various reasons. And then the idea of starting my own brand and doing my own commercial distilling took off. And as everything started in the garage as a hobby with a small little still, um, and eventually started doing some formal courses at Distillique in Pretoria, and from there, that just grew until eventually the trigger was pulled on going commercial. And I think the second time I met you was at Thousand Hills uh, 
chef school where they have a brewery and you were busy making a beer which you wanted to distill. That's right, yeah. Mm. So at that stage, our mash tun wasn't ready. Okay. So we did a collaboration with the Thousand Hills Brewery to, to make the, the wort for us. Okay. Mm. Um, the process from starting the dream or dreaming the dream and getting the licensing and the premises and everything is, is a long time. Yeah, I know. It was a long journey. Um, two years to get our license. And you need to pay rent in the meantime. Exactly. Your license is linked to a physical premises. So you've got that lease to, to cover for that period while you're waiting. Um, yeah, so a lot of red tape involved. Um, probably the, one of the biggest hurdles to starting up a distillery is the, the red tape. Yeah. And I guess the funds. What What do you do for a living? Or what did you do for a living? <laughs> well, I'm a full-time distiller at the moment. <laughs> okay. No, but my yeah, my career goes back to my background is land surveying, um, and I worked at the University of KwaZulu Natal for 20 years in the land surveying department. And then during that time, I founded the African Conservation Trust, which was a non-profit environmental organisation. Um, left the university in 2014 and went full-time with the African Conservation Trust. Which did what? So it's a broad-based environmental organization. Um, so all the regular stuff, you know, we're very involved with Project Rhino and the anti-poaching operations and KZN. Um, but that component of my background in land surveying I brought into the trust as well um, with the heritage um, section. So we did a lot of heritage documentation of rock art sites in the Drakensberg um, historical buildings, battlefields, so the whole 3D laser scanning um, that we were bringing into land surveying are brought into the heritage sector of the non-profit sounds, as well. Sounds like fun, but um, uh, the biggest hurdle is probably to raise funds. Um, yeah, that's always a challenge for every NGO, so <laughs> to keep the operations going, that's what's a large component of the job is to, to keep the funds coming in. Yeah, and how mm. do how do you do that? Is there a government agency that funds it, or is it through contacts? Um, we had a lot of funding through the National Lottery, um, uh, I must say that, yes, over the years. Um, significant amounts. Um, various projects, not just the heritage projects, but also food security, permaculture, conservation agriculture projects, um, food gardens for ECD centers and schools and homesteads. Um, but yeah, so it's a mixture of funding that comes in from private, corporate, um, some government funding as well. And do you employ somebody to do that or is that your job? Uh, no, it's quite a big team, depending on what size projects and what funding we've got. But I mean, we've had s up to 300 staff, depending okay. on, on the size of the project. Um, so at the moment, we're around about 30-odd uh, people working on different projects. Okay, so it's mm. still going? Yes, okay. yes it is, yeah. So I'm still the current chairman. Okay. Mm. And that's why you got a Land Rover, or is that to drive to Malawi <laughs> to drink gin? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that comes from the, the field work of the environmental <laughs> organization. <laughs> I, yeah, I think every every uh, gin maker needs to have a branded Land Rover. I think it certainly works well. People always say that they've seen it driving around, so it's <laughs> certainly eye-catching. Yeah. At least it is driving. <laughs> okay, and what... There are a lot of uh, distilleries now, craft distilleries, and 
I'm sure the whole lockdown hasn't helped. So the the market must be extremely difficult. And I'm saying this so that not for people to feel sorry for you, but to just realistically to understand what is the future of craft distilling and is it good enough to have a good spirit and a good story? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, when we were looking at setting up commercially, uh, even at that stage, there was a huge amount of gins coming onto the market and onto the shelves. And we realized that we would have to do something really special with our packaging and presentation of any product that we were going out there with um, just to compete. Um, so I think we've succeeded with that, um, with our gin. Um, and yeah, we need to need to stand out on the shelf these days to to make it. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, tell us a little bit about the packaging. You've got this very distinct, um, I want to call it a tourist trap kind of look. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was certainly <laughs> some of the ideas behind it. So our bottle is a fully coated bottle, uh, matte black, um, and we've got an Nguni bull on the on the front as a logo and a genuine copper band around the neck with beads and a copper Africa charm. Um, and certainly the hospitality sector and the tourism sector was a focus of ours at that stage before COVID and the pandemic really knocked that for six. Um, so that's, that aspect will have to wait, but yeah, our brand has certainly been recognized and everybody comments on it. So I think we hit it on the head with, with our branding. Yeah. Um, and is that, that Nguni is a special Nguni or is it, is it a, a yeah, the story behind <laughs> that you, is, did you download it from the internet? No, <laughs> yeah, the story behind that also relates to the community work that I did with the African Conservation Trust and I was on a project with a community and we were walking around, uh, just an area just north of Mpangeni and walking down this cattle path and we came to a little stream and this bull was standing on the other side of the stream, just this magnificent Nguni bull. Um, so I took a photo with my cell phone and when we were sitting down trying to think what logo we wanted to go with the distillery, we decided on that, but the quality wasn't good enough. So I had to contact my friend who I was working with and say, you know, could you possibly try and find the owner of that bull in that community? <laughs> so a couple of weeks later, he came back and said, no, he knew who the owner was. He had found out who he was. And so we organized to go up and do a proper photo shoot with the bull. But of course, yeah, we organized that, we got there, and uh, the bull was nowhere to be found. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, no, no, he knows where it is, and we went walking off into the bush, and after about two hours of hot, sweaty walking, <laughs> he pointed across this huge valley to this little white speck on the other side, and he said, that's him over there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he said, just hang on, go back to the car and wait, and you'll go and fetch it. And about a couple of hours later, he came back and he said, no, <laughs> no, he couldn't get him. So he said, when I've got him back in the crawl, I'll let you know, and you can come up again and, and photograph him. And that and was easier. And it wasn't easier just to, to get an artist to put, draw it. <laughs> <laughs> I just had some kind of connection to this, yeah. Paul, so I really wanted that one. <laughs> yeah. So eventually we got back and we eventually we found him. And yeah, I spent about three hours just walking with the herd and taking over 300 photographs of this bull. That eventually chose one of those for the logo on the bottle. <laughs> wow, that's a cool story. Um, my dad was a, was a f farmer and he had a Nguni herd. 
Um, so I can relate to it. And I mean, everyone is different. Well, I was just going to mention that. I mean, that also relates to the whole craft ethos. Mm. You know, every Nguni heart pattern is different. Every horn shape is different. Yeah. And that's very much the kind of craft uh, distillery type of ethos where every single batch is small batch handmade. And even though you try and keep your recipes exactly the same, you can never replicate one from the next. Yeah. Um, so it kind of ties into that whole yeah. crafting ethos. Yeah. Okay. And then, but you, you call your distillery not the Nguni Distillery, Brackenhill. Yes. So mm. Brackenhill is across the road from my kid's school. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's one of the m new modern kind of industrial parks, which is not, not. Uh, I mean, it's very cool and it's very nice. You've done a really nice job there. But it doesn't, it's not a typical, I, I would guess, craft-looking little distillery on a farm somewhere. No, so again, we, with your licensing, you either got two choices. Either you're on an agricultural zoned land like a farm or you're in an industrial zoned area. Mm. And because I live in the area, Brackenhill industrial area was an area that I knew and that we could get the correct size premises for. But also the name Brackenhill, looking to the future and possibly exporting to Europe, you know, Brackenhill could quite easily be conceived as a you know, place in Scotland or okay. something like that. So <laughs> also looking forward, um, it wasn't, a, yeah, a bad name to choose. <laughs> yeah, but it is also, I mean, it's accessible. And as I say, it's close to market school and there's a Curro school so and, and a lot of development going on estates and stuff so that's right it's right next to Cotswold Downs a major estate um, and the actual Acacia Business Park is a very nice presentable industrial park as they go yeah so we thought that was very suitable for people to come and visit the distillery for tours and tastings and other experiences yeah you were selected to be on a CNN uh, little film that was broadcast on Inside Africa. Yes, recently. that's right. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that experience and, and how they found you. Well, again, it was our branding and our social media posts that they picked up on. And in their research, they, they found out about the backstory towards the, to the gin, um, the fact that we're using small-scale farmers near Lundi to grow some of the crops for us. Um, including Zulu rainbow maize, which mm. is an heirloom crop, an ancient variety of maize, uh, where every kernel is a different color. It's a speckled maize, yeah. which you don't really see these days. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I think, I mean, just just for me growing up on a farm, that was when I saw that, I thought, I've seen this before, but I haven't seen it in, in 30, 40 years. No, exactly. Um, but all the all the guys used to plant that, and, uh, and I even think my grandparents must have farmed with that maize variety than uh, these modern varieties from pioneer seeds or whatever. Yeah, so when we approached them to, to grow it for us, they also had the same issues that they didn't have oh, they couldn't enough, enough seeds. So they had to approach their family members who were scattered across KZN yeah. who had taken little bags or handfuls of seed that they still had. And they brought that back to the family plot and started farming for us. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like you uh, really don't want a commercial <laughs> product here. Must be hard to get. I mean, to grow your own 
maize to to we we don't use it exclusively at the moment we do have to buy in neutral alcohol just because they can't actually um, grow enough for us at the moment Um, they grow the zulu rainbow maize as well as sorghum Mm. and we use those two plus uh, barley for our grain mix um, for the the spirits the base spirits that we ferment in the distillery ourselves yeah oh i remember the sorghum as well my dad used to make a porridge with that mm. which uh, a fermented kind of porridge where every day you <coughs> had to like leave a little bit behind that was like the mother dough <laughs> I guess, and then add a, add a new batch every day and tomorrow that was used to make the the dog or the porridge no certainly when we're doing our mashes it smells like multibella in the distillery yeah. <laughs> oh wonderful i like that um, so what do you actually distill? What are your, I mean, when I, when I met you at Thousand Hills, you were working on a whiskey, but um, you do, I guess you do a couple of different things. Yeah, so we have done a whiskey in the past. Um, we do work in collaboration with the local um, breweries, craft breweries. If they have what they consider a failed batch of beer, that's, that's not failed to us because we can distill it for the alcohol. And depending on what beer it is, um, yeah, we can decide to do a whiskey with it. Uh, so we bring it off to still at about 85% um, just to retain some of the, the flavors and aromas from the actual beer itself. And we've done some experiments with that. And recently another craft uh, brewery in, in Kloof, um, Stumpnose, also had a, a batch that they weren't happy with. So we've distilled that and I'm doing a whiskey trial with that. We have got three small barrels, six-liter barrels. One's an ex-South um, African brandy barrel. And the other one is an ex-South African Merlot barrel. And the other one is an ex-Bourbon barrel. So we put the same spirit into all three at the same day. Um, so in a couple of months' time, we'll probably start having a bit of a tasting at Stumpnose Brewery and see how those come out, different colors, different tastes, see what effects the, the different barrels have on the same spirit. Yeah, I think that's wonderful, especially mm. when the little craft breweries start supporting the craft distillers, if they have a tap room, I guess. I know that uh, a distiller in Pretoria, Draymond's, was supplying the craft brewers with a little barrel, and instead of selling the regular whiskies, they would s- promote his his whiskey. Um, yeah, no, we, we certainly have a nice collaboration with Thousand Hills Brewery and Clockwork Brewery um, and Stumpnose as well. Yeah. Uh, where they sell our products in their little bottle stores that they have and also invite us to do pourings and attend events when they have functions. Okay. Mm. So that's cool. Collabs, eh? Um, So that's the whiskey. Um, Everybody was doing gin, so I guess uh, you do gins as well, and that's the one with with the rainbow maize. Yes, yeah. So that's our main, and that was the first product that we started with. Mm. Um, That's our main focus is the gin. So, and... Because you're not in Cape Town, you don't have to use Feinbos? What do you... <laughs> no, exactly. Um, so again, keeping with the, the idea of having a, a uniquely KZN um, or even Bushveld type of theme with the Nguni as the logo, um, we wanted a signature botanical that was from the area and more Bushveldy than than the Feinbos. So we eventually decided on Mzuzwane, which the English name is Lemonbush. So it's an indigenous herb that grows widely through South Africa and even Southern Africa. Um, but it's got a lovely um, lemony aroma to it. Um, also, it's used for a multitude of medicinal uses and traditional uses. So 
yeah, it made a nice fit. And we developed a nice recipe that seems to be going down very well. Okay. And then mm. you did something with um, with uh, Singita, which is, uh, I think it's owned by Luke Bales, who's, who's also local. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, so again, as I said earlier, I mean, part of our focus was the hospitality industry yeah. to start with. Okay, but that's um, obviously very quiet at the moment. Yes, no, it's taken a huge knock. <laughs> okay. Um, but again, because of our community involvement and the potential to involve local communities, it's ideal for lodges like that who are surrounded by community members around their reserves to start working with them. And we could easily, as a craft distiller, make a batch of gin or vodka or, or whiskey even from crops grown by local communities around their reserves if they wanted to literally okay. we can work on such a small scale wow so not um, only putting their stickers on but actually putting their in the yes okay and it all relates back to the story i mean yeah. if we did something like that their bar staff could have a really nice story to tell their mm. the international guests and that's very much appreciated um these days yeah mm. and being a local distillery and local here in the upper highway area of of Durban, um, you you are open to the public. Yes, now we are. You don't have a regular tasting room, but but uh, it's a it's a nice facility. Yes, now we've had some groups coming through. Obviously, COVID has impacted on that quite severely um, yeah. at various stages. But yes, so we do have facilities for people to come in and do tastings and tours. And we also have a gin-making experience, which is quite different and unique, not offered by anybody else locally here, um, where people can come in and work with our, I think it's about 45 or more different single botanicals that we've got, um, and eventually make their own 200ml bottle of gin to take away with them. Explain that, because I was fascinated when I saw all these bottles. So when you talk about botanicals, I normally just see powder and dried <laughs> <laughs> lemon skin peels and stuff but you had already distilled each flavor is that what you would call it well that's that's the process you go through when you make a commercial recipe so we do contract ginning as well okay. and we get inquiries from people all the time almost every day almost to to look at uh, their own brand of gin or or vodka or something like that and yeah to make your flavor recipe for a gin is you obviously have to select what botanicals you want to work with. And then you go through a process of measuring out precise quantities of each, mixing them together, tasting them, smelling them, and then deciding which botanical you need to change a bit. You can only can change one at a time, otherwise you don't know what's made the difference to the flavor and aroma. Yeah. And you'll be surprised at what a slight change in one botanical can make to the entire um, recipe. Um, so you go through that whole iteration process so many number of times until you find the, the final product that you're happy with. Um, so that's, that's how you would do a commercial flavor. Uh, so people can go through that same process with us under my guidance um, okay. and helping them along you know, with the different flavor groups and moods and emotions that those different botanicals create in a gin. So it's quite a fun and educational experience. And would, and that, would that be what you what you could also do at the gin experience, or is that obviously yes? No, that, that's scale? exactly what they do at the gin making experience. Okay. They go through that process, mm. okay. 
And of course, the the more iterations they do on their flavor, the more fun it becomes as they taste more and more <laughs> of their sample product. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, at the end, we work out the exact ratios of which botanical we need um, to make up their their gin. Okay. So going back to those botanicals, our botanical library. Obviously, we've got the the raw. Uh, herbs and spices etc but we do an individual run on each botanical um, with exactly the same amount of uh, botanical in the run so like say 50 grams of each spice or botanical and that gets cut to 43% alcohol so the whole range the whole library is all at the same alcohol percentage so eventually once you've decided on how many milliliters of each botanical you've got in your final recipe we can work backwards to work out how many grams of each botanical we would need to run in that recipe if we we're doing a full proper run on the on the still okay so tell us a little bit about the challenges i mean it's it's a very glamorous and it all looks so exciting but what does it really involve and what have been the biggest challenges for you besides COVID and, and the red tape? Well, yeah, those were two, two significant <laughs> challenges. <laughs> um, obviously, it's getting into the market um, and getting sales going. Uh, we are in the local retail stores, um, the Topses mm. in particular. Um, and we do a lot of direct sales as well. Um, we've got agents working for us, uh, attending functions, um, events, uh, venues luckily the clubs and pubs are starting to to pick up again at the moment um so yeah we're getting into that uh, it's like just a case of really getting known that we are actually here and that we do we can have people at the distillery and and uh, yeah and getting out there slowly it's a slow process yeah mm. obviously i mean to go into retail on a national level you have to have a quite a significant amount of backing um, to cover the stock that's needed for 60, 90 days. Mm, until um, they pay you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we haven't gone that route. Um, so we're going out there very slowly and organically. And export is a similar challenge, I guess. Um, export is definitely one of our things that we're looking at. Um, we've been lucky enough to have the UK Gin Club um, also see our branding on social media early days it was within a couple of weeks of us actually starting and they approached us and they select 12 gins a year six are from the uk and six are international and they wanted one from africa so they've asked us to submit a sample to them for that but that's a huge uh, opportunity for us if we do get selected it's a hundred thousand bottle order so oh. <laughs> that would be going from like tortoise to cheetah speed and <laughs> in one go but that's the kind of th thing that's yeah can really get you going yeah. so we do do rums uh, again we started small scale um, just doing molasses fermentations which is one of the the processes of making rum so it's yeah. either molasses or sugarcane juice which is your rum agricole style which is what we should be doing in KZN absolutely yes um, and yeah I think there's a few distilleries that are doing it now um, exclusively but it's yeah it's a different uh, taste and aroma to what South Africans are used to that's certainly the case so it's going to take a while for them to to get into that market but overseas it's yeah particularly in France and Europe it's very popular um, 
So we've also started looking at trying to find some small-scale local growers, which I think I've found now near Tugela Mouth, um, that aren't contracted to the big malls. And they've got small little plots of sugarcane, you know, half a hectare here, one hectare there. So we're going to start looking at changing from molasses-based fermentations to sugarcane juice fermentations if we can get some funding to help them with getting pressing machines, etc., like that. Um, Yeah, so at the moment we do a white rum, gold rum, and a dark rum. And again, adding in the little craft components just to make it a bit different. Um, Our gold rum starts aging on French oak chips. Uh, but we've added in Sekelbos, which is a local hardwood, okay. um, which you're probably used to using in your braai. Yeah. Um, and I've toasted staves of that to three different levels um, to try and attract different aromas and flavors out of the wood. Um, and I actually saw that and got the idea during lockdown. One of the um, hobbyist groups, uh, a guy had posted a... Uh, I think he was making a, a whiskey or something like that, and he had used Sekelbos to age his product, and the color was just so amazing. I thought that's that's great. Let me try that. <laughs> so that's all, and that's in our rums at the moment. Okay, mm. so that would be you'd have to find a really cool name for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Can they order the products online as well, or is it only through? Uh, we do have our own online shop on our yeah. website, um, but we are going to be going on to takealot.com. Take yeah. yeah. Um, that'll give us a national, basically a national retail outlet for ourselves to, to promote. Um, it's a name that everybody recognizes and trusts in South Africa. Yeah. Um, so we'll start getting onto that maybe even towards the end of this month, early next month. Yeah. We'll okay. start promoting that. So look out for the Bracken Hill brand. Um, brackenhillcraft.co.za and support our local craft distillery. Thank no, you, thanks a lot. Thanks, Holger. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.